0: to make sure that that you get some information ahead of time before you go ahead and uh, either A, make an investment or B, if you're gonna move either to Australia from the US or to the US from Australia, make sure you know what you're getting into.
1: You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast,
0: Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
1: Welcome to episode 233 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. What are important differences between U.S. and Australian tax for individuals? What about franking credits and super guarantee payments in Australia? And what about exempt interest and qualified dividends in the U.S.? These are the questions I asked Seth Hertz, Tax Director of Expat U.S. Tax in Sydney. Let's now look at how U.S. income is recognized in Australian tax returns. Sure. I have two questions for you with respect to that. You mentioned already before correctly that the U.S. works on a calendar year whereas we work on a 30th of June financial year. But I have heard that you can change the date of your individual tax return to a different date. So in theory, I understand you could change your individual tax return to a 30th of June cutoff. Have you ever seen that happening? It's
0: very unusual from a US point of view to do that. And because you run into some really difficult, you've got short tax years then when you do that for a year that you make the change. We generally don't see it happening in oh. that respect, not for individuals. I think there there is the ability to do so. You have to get permission. You have to file for it's applications. Long. It's usually something that we just don't see happening. Really, because as much as... It's a little bit administratively annoying to have to deal with two different tax years. It's probably even more administratively annoying to try and deal with the change.
1: Different question. So now you have to somehow get the 31st of December tax year from the U.S. tax return into the 30th of June Australian tax return. My working operandi is there that if it's really low amounts, Just take the full amount from the 31st and recognize this in the year that the 31st falls into the 30th of June. And I know I just phrased this in a very complicated way, but basically if it's low amounts, don't split the US tax return. Just put the full lot into the relevant Australian tax year. If it's a little bit more than being completely immaterial, just cut it in half. And then if it's really high amounts, then drill down to the actual transactions and allocate them to the right year. Is that a... It's
0: this? a pretty common method. The terminology that I've seen used most often with that is called coterminous, meaning assuming that both countries have the same year end. coterminous is, is the uh, yeah, is the phraseology. I like, that.
1: I like that. So meaning if the amounts are not material and what is material is of course a question of definition. But if the amounts are not material don't bother even with splitting the whole lot just recognize the full lot in one year the way to think about it th-
0: you will never find anything in the act in australia that allows coterminists to be used there's there's no way to avoid using very specific item for item Yes. Timing on on income. Yes, if you st- went
1: by the book, you would have to go down to every little interest payment and every little dividend payment and work That's out right. exactly in which. What you're looking at you. here
0: is a situation which says, well, in some cases you may have a long time to wait in order to get that, and quite a lot of effort to go in. And as you put it, in a number of circumstances, you may have types of recurring income. Interest for is a great example for this where the amounts are going to be fairly static and similar throughout the year. And so having an assumption of saying, okay, we can look at the US amount and say, that's probably going to be close to the right for the Australian amount. And therefore, that's the number we're going to report coming off the US return. You won't be far off, especially as you say, if the amounts are low. But in the end, you're still you know you're you're going to be slightly inaccurate in all probability from doing so you know does the ATO mind that inaccuracy we have not seen that come up as something that they mind do they you know is it something that's been brought up with them of course not because i don't think there'd be any way they could sit there and say yes that's okay because they would sit there and say you have to look at each payment date of interest and calculate it accordingly it's practically going to be very difficult to have that done accurately, and then also to figure out how much tax has to be given as a foreign income tax offset in Australia as well, because sometimes that tax hasn't been paid because of the different tax years, and you won't you won't know until the following US year has been prepared. So the reason for, for doing this is practical. It's to ensure that the system can progress forward and the return can be lodged either timely or or avoid having to go back and amend prior year returns in order to get more accurate information with regards to both income and phytos. And so that's the reason for doing it. And I think if you got the ATO off the record, they would probably say, yeah, we're, we're happy with that but they could never say it on the record.
1: Different question. You only get the foreign tax credit once you've actually paid the tax.
0: That's the Australian rule. You must you must have paid that tax before you can claim the FITO.
1: Why do you say Australian rule? You mean that's the US rule? Because we're talking about a foreign tax credit in America oh, for really? the tax you pay I, in Australia.
0: I'm sorry. I thought you were referring to the Australian tax return yes. for this one. Yeah, yeah. It's still the same thing for the US. The tax has to have been... Well, it has to at least have been calculated and been officially recognized. It has, and that's must the have the
1: become a liability. Yeah,
0: that's right. You must
1: have your taxes.
0: The U.S. does have two different ways of claiming foreign tax credits, and probably worth bringing that to bear here. One is called the the paid method, which is akin to the cash method. So, if we're looking at a 2019 U.S. tax return, they would look and say, "Okay, Australian taxes that have been paid within the calendar year 2019, without regard to which Australian year." They referred to. So you could be paying taxes for the 2017 18 Australian year, for example. They might have been paid in 2019, and they would get captured in the 2019 US return under that method. The other method for capturing foreign taxes for the foreign tax credit is called the accrued method. And for that one, they look at the Australian year end. And so if we're looking at a 2019 US return, it'll look and say which australian year ended in 2019 us return which will be the 18/19 australian return because it ends on the 30th of june 2019 and what we're looking at there is saying any australian tax that relates to that australian 2018-19 return regardless of when it is paid will be captured in the us 2019 return and so you might have easily as you mentioned earlier you're with a tax agent you don't lodge that eighteen nineteen return until May of 2020. You pay the tax due in 20 in June of 2020. You would have to wait until that number is known before you could finish your foreign tax credit calculations for U.S. purposes for the 2019 return.
1: So, if you use the accrual method, you would receive a U.S. foreign tax credit before you even have, long before you have well, paid. Well,
0: probably you would have to wait until you had a notice of assessment. From Australia, that says this is the amount. They we agree that this is the amount. So you're probably looking at a question of of a week or two before you know, or maybe three weeks before the uh, payment was made. But it has to have been imposed. There has to be a liability that's known and and officially recognized before you can claim it. The reason why that's you know you really do have to have it is because there's exchange rate questions about the date that you're going to use to exchange the to convert to U.S. dollars as well. And so there's the date page still is relevant in that respect if it goes far enough away from the actual year then you might need to use the actual date of exchange rather than an an average rate which otherwise you can use
1: franking credits yep the us doesn't have franking credits no. when you have a frank dividend in australia you can't claim the franking credits in the us do you recognize the gross amount of the dividend and then just disregard the franking credits you receive? Or do you recognize the net amount of the dividend? So let's say a gross dividend of $100 was paid, so you received $70 with a franking credit of 30 Do you recognize the $70 in the US tax return?
0: You use my exact example there, Heidi. That's exactly the numbers I always use. In that example, the US does not recognize the $30 in any way, shape, or form. So the taxable dividend in the US will be $70. And from a foreign tax credit point of view, the $30 also is not recognized because the U.S. doesn't deem that $30 to have been paid by the individual, and therefore it's not a tax credit available to the individual. So the only thing that would be available for a foreign tax credit would be if there's any top-up tax in the individual's
1: return that goes above that 30%. But that can become quite complicated. It can and does. For the person preparing the US tax return. It can. It easily. I mean, in
0: essence, we have to we have to look at the Australian returns. And this is where having the expertise on both sides of the Pacific Ocean is really helpful, because the ability to look at an Australian return and know what you're looking at and being able to carve out the franking credits from the liability. And make sure that you're only claiming the excess amounts for dividends is, is uh, in order to get it accurate. That's what you have to do.
1: Do you have software that makes it easy for you to translate from an Australian tax return to a US tax return? Or, or let me say it differently, do the two softwares that you use for the Australian tax return and the US tax return, do those two softwares talk to each other?
0: No, no. That, that would be a really lovely innovation. And if you can find anyone who like who can put that together, that would be great. Yeah. But we don't have that yet.
1: It probably is doable. I'm in sure it of, is. <laughs> it's just that the word "zap" comes to my comes to my mind. But
0: yeah, I'd be more than interested in in hearing about that because it would make life much easier. Yeah, at the moment, it's two different systems that you're using in order to make that happen.
1: Super guarantee payments. Mm. I understand that they are recognized as income in the U.S. So in Australia, they don't appear as as income in the Australian tax return, but this 9.5% or in the future, 10, 11, 12%, that is recognized as income in the US.
0: You'll get arguments on this particular point. There are some accounting firms or law firms out there that take different positions. The most prevalent position, I think is probably the non-controversial way to describe it, is that the super guarantee ends up being in essence, additional salary and wages, and therefore recognized as such for US purposes and has to be captured. There are actually other possibilities as well, where you're dealing with a question of if you're earning enough, which in the US is actually not a high amount if it's over 120,000, it's also possible that instead you're going to be captured on the growth in your super fund rather than just the um, the employer contributions.
1: Wow. It's, Unrealized.
0: Undistributed, yeah. And unrealized. So it could go up and could go down. That's right.
1: Do you have a lot of clients? We
0: have a lot of clients where that yeah, happens. Yes. And I think this comes back again where a lot of individuals, you know, their initial reaction is horror, you know, when they hear something like this. And it's understandable because they sit there and say, this is my retirement income. Why am I being taxed on that in the US? And then we show them the impact on the U.S. return.
1: And it's
0: $3.50. If that, and it's because, again, the the tax rate is so much higher in Australia on the other income that even though the U.S. is imposing some tax on the super, the Australian tax on the other salary and wages is high enough to be able to fill in that gap.
1: It's not so material at the moment because most of your clients are still working in their 20s, 30s, 40s, et cetera. But once those clients age and come into their 60s, 70s, are retired, have no other income, just have their SMSF or super fund, and then make substantial realized or unrealized gains in their super fund, it well, could be material. But then, of category, course, their yeah. foreign tax credits that they carried through all those years, of course, will help them. There's
0: a few different things, that the topics that you're bringing up there. One you know, being that if you've recognized those contributions along the way, or if you've recognized the growth in the super fund along the way, and we look then at the time of distribution from the super, at the time later in life, as you mentioned, where they might be just relying on their superannuation distributions, which if they're in pension mode in Australia, they're coming out tax-free under current law. The question in the US is, has the distribution, has any portion of that previously been taxed? U.S. purposes, and if the answer is yes, well, then standard tax concepts say that what's previously been taxed doesn't get taxed again.
1: Okay, so that means the pension is tax-free in the U.S. Not tax-free, but it's not taxed again because it has already been taxed before,
0: to the extent that that's the case. And that's you know having indications and understanding about what's previously been taxed is quite critical in that respect. And that's going to sometimes require quite a few years of U.S. returns having the numbers and having a breakdown of the numbers to know what's been included for super along the way. But I mean, without getting down into the granular detail of this, what the important thing to realize is it's not necessarily the end of the world. It's not, it's not Armageddon from a tax perspective. It is more complicated. There's reporting obligations beyond just the income that has to happen with super for informational filings in the US that has to be there. It's worth having the conversation with someone who knows what they're talking about to understand the impact, but you may not end up with a financial hit on that going forward. The other thing I wanted to go through, because you touched on it briefly, is when you're dealing with self-managed super funds, then you're dealing with a, with a situation where you now start looking not at the necessarily only at the contributions into the fund, but also potentially at what's happening within the fund, the earnings within the fund as well. Another good reason to make sure that you have that chat as a client with someone who understands what's going on to make sure that there's an understanding of what has to be reported in the US, what informational forms have to be reported in the US, because with self-managed super funds, there's a whole swath of additional forms that have to be completed with pretty substantial penalties for not doing so. It's worth doing. Does it require additional tax in the US? Oftentimes, no, and sometimes, yes. You have to really look at the underlying pieces. There's a lot of moving parts to know what the answer is, but it's worth making sure that you've got that answer.
1: Capital gains in the US, I assume you don't have a 50% CGT discount and you don't have small business CGT concessions. So yes, the tax rate is lower and the standard deductions are higher, but you could be hit with quite a substantial tax if you are a US citizen, you have built up your own small business in Australia, you sell, you don't pay any tax in Australia because you claim the small business CGT concessions, but those don't exist in the US. So you could be hit with quite a Tax bill
0: in the US? Yeah, there, there are concessions in the US for capital gains, you know, just on a general basis, it, especially if a capital asset has been held for longer than one year. And that's a, a similar time threshold as what's in place for Australia. It's the same, Australia. Yeah. So you're looking at in the US, what you have is flat rates of tax or maximum rates of tax, which are substantially lower than the marginal rates.
1: A flat rate of tax on capital gains. Correct,
0: if it's long-term.
1: And what's the top flat the, rate normally of Normally for most
0: people, if, you, if your overall income is below around 400,000 US or so, most people are going to be paying 15% on their long-term capital gains. If you have income above that, you might be up to 20% on those long-term capital gains. There is even some people for whom they have an extremely low amount of US income and they might not pay anything on the US capital gains. So,
1: but it could still hit you quite badly if your capital gain on the sale of the business is let's say close to 6 million because you you set it up for basically nothing. You were very successful. You sell it for $6 million or just under $6 million, so you still qualify for the small business concessions. It, it is possible. 15, it's percent 20% on $6 is still quite high.
0: There are some U.S. small business concessions there. It's a little bit detailed to go into okay, um, but there here, but there, there are some stuff there, and it's and worth having that conversation and worth having that knowledge ahead of time so that you know what you're dealing with.
1: The last U.S. tax return I looked at, the person does have Australian bank accounts. Yes. But on the U.S. tax return, it said no. You know where, where it says, "Do you have any bank accounts and other financial assets, etc., outside of the U.S.?" The U.S. tax return said no, even though that is that is wrong. There are bank accounts outside of the U.S., and I was surprised because I had this image of the IIS as this omni. Is this only present force that knows everything? And so they clearly didn't pick this one up. Is your experience that they really only jump into action when bank accounts are not declared that hold large amounts and it comes down to materiality? So if somebody doesn't declare a bank account that has 20, 30, 40, 000 in it or so, unlikely that the IIS will jump on that? Or have you seen the IIS? And I, I don't think it's even the IS. I think it's another, it, it's, I think it's the Treasury Department or so that will then jump into action. Have you seen how high is the materiality threshold?
0: So I'll go back a little bit. The spot where you were probably were looking on that particular US it's return. It's 1040, at the bottom a, of
1: 1040. Yeah,
0: there's a particular schedule, Schedule B in the US tax package, which has interest and dividend income on it. And then- on that same form, there are questions at the bottom which talk about whether an individual has foreign accounts offshore. There's two different questions there. One, do they have the foreign accounts? And if obviously if they do, the answer has to be yes. The second question then talks about are they do required they to file this informational form, which is called the FINSEN 114. It used to be called an F bar. Yes foreign bank account yeah, reporting. Yeah,
1: FBAR no longer exists?
0: It does. It very much does. But the requirement for filing is different than the first question, which just says, do you have any? Oh, okay. The requirement okay. for filing is if you add up the highest balance on all of those accounts offshore, and if they, if that balance, combined balance, yes, exceeds, exceeds US equivalent of 10,000 during the year, then there's a requirement to lodge FBARs. For all of the accounts, even yes. no matter whether they exceed ten thousand or not.
1: Yes, and their bank account in Australia would have exceeded ten thousand yeah, U.S. Then, dollars. then
0: that sounds incorrect.
1: Have yeah. you have you seen the? It's the Treasury Department that it then is the jumps- Treasury
0: Department in the U.S. And then you come down to the second part of your question, which is, what is the penalty for not? Yeah, having how likely Boston. are
1: they to jump and into action? how likely action- are
0: they for for doing so? The penalty can be 10,000 US dollars, to be honest, at a minimum for them to to hit you with for that not filing a foreign bank account reporting form or a FinCEN 114. And that can be multiplied depending on how many you've missed from that perspective. Now, how likely is it? We have not seen a lot. The Probably trend, also because
1: your clients don't say no when they have bank no, accounts.
0: No, and then that's well, obviously if we're doing it, we're making sure that we get those in for sure the trend is upwards as far as
1: they get more the access. frequency
0: of imposing it. Now, the question of does the US government have the capability of looking at a return or looking at it at the FinCEN 114 and saying something's missing? Yes, they have that capability. Yeah. There's plenty of exchange information, exchange provisions that are out there for that to happen. Is that a frequent enough occurrence that they use those, it's very infrequent. And so I don't see this happen by the Department of the Treasury coming up with that answer on their own. Normally, it would come up if the return is examined for some other reason. And then as part of that examination and the looking at all of the affairs, there's a realization that something has been missed. That's when that post often comes up. Often can come up as well if a taxpayer tries to file a late foreign bank account reporting form, You know, especially the later it is, the more likely it is, where they just do it out of the blue without any kind of communication ahead of time, then you see that happen. There can be appeals on that penalty that take place, but they're getting more and more strict about it. And that's the trend that takes place. So when we talk to clients, we just sit there and say, look, this is not a form that generates tax. This is purely informational. If in doubt, put it in. Declare it in and of itself. That doesn't generate tax on its own. Why would you not? Why would you play around with this? And you go from there. There's a few different things that that come to mind, which for the clients, and we'll, we'll use the classic example of Americans in Australia for this says some of the surprises yeah, that can come up. First of which is something that's been in place now for, it's probably about six years, seven years, which is called the net investment income tax, which is attached to the Obamacare provisions that passed in 2010. And that net investment income tax is a really a surtax of 3.8% when your overall income goes above certain thresholds typically are at least 200,000 US and then you have any type of investment income interest dividends capital gains rental royalties etc that investment income when you when you go above that amount what's going to happen is you're going to get a 3.8% surcharge that goes in Not necessarily a high number amount. The difference is because it's put into a different part of the US tax code and on the return, it shows up in a different spot. It is not eligible to be reduced by Australian taxes.
1: So it doesn't get affected by the foreign tax credit.
0: So the foreign tax credits cannot reduce it.
1: So and that therefore, means you
0: actually have double tax. ta- double taxation in that respect, where you can end up with a tax liability on your U.S. return, and still pay forty seven percent in Australia on that same income, and so you can end up with a fifty point eight tax percent fifty point eight percent tax rate on that investment income, and there's no way to avoid that.
1: So this net investment income tax is that put into a separate bucket to pay for Obamacare?
0: Or does it just it's, go into it, the general tax income? From a income? point of view of usage, yes. It is meant to be helping uh, pay from a medical insurance perspective for, for but US But does it purposes. actually go
1: into a different bucket? I
0: mean, you pay it as a tax liability on the return.
1: I mean, more how the US government then deals with it. Uses it? Yeah.
0: Harder to know the answer to that I'll question. So it probably
1: just goes into the general tax income as our Medicare levy goes. I think
0: ostensibly it is probably meant to be used for that particular purpose, I have no idea how to check on that, though.
1: I thought Obamacare was abolished or was about to be abolished. Obamacare has been chipped at,
0: and what they've done is they've eliminated, and this will start with the 2019 year, what's called the individual mandate. And what that meant was that individuals who had to have some form of of medical coverage um, to avoid getting penalized on their U.S. income tax returns... If we're talking about Americans who are working, who are living and working in Australia, though, and they're overseas, they were not necessarily subject to that individual mandate anyway, because they had an exemption when they're overseas.
1: Oh, yes. So it's the penalty that has been exempted. The penalty so the, has been the eliminated. The penalty rate has basically been reduced to zero, Correct. And hence you do it or you don't do it. That's right. Yes. That's okay.
0: right. It's interesting. That's one of the changes for 2019 US tax returns is that even that form- that usually had been in place for 2018 and earlier is has disappeared because there's no point in having it anymore. That's the difference uh, with that this is that the net investment income tax has not been eliminated and so that continues forward going into the future. That's something that can lead to a to a US tax liability and and often does from that point of view. The second item that really comes to mind are some The fact that when you're doing typical Australian strategies, both for investment and for tax, is to make sure that you're aware of how they play on the US return. One thing that comes to mind is setting up a family trust in Australia, setting up a self-managed super fund in Australia. We touched on this earlier. Typically speaking, the US would look at these types of vehicles as flow through vehicles, they would ignore them for the purposes of the U.S. return and understanding whether the income within them still would flow onto the individual return for the U.S. There would also be separate informational form filings that would need to happen for those types of trusts in the U.S. with substantial penalties for not having done so. Very important that when you have those types of structures to make sure that you're engaging with a U.S. tax preparer who understands what's going on with that to save a lot of potential penalties if it comes down the wrong way.
1: Because the strategy that is very common in Australia, where you have a family trust and then you distribute to a bucket company, that could backfire in your U.S. tax return. Less about
0: it can backfire. Although again, often we don't necessarily see a backfire as opposed to the real issue being that it just hasn't been declared in the US return and that's and there have separate filings that have to be done and if that hasn't been done there,
1: there are huge penalties, penalties that
0: are there including percentages of the value of the trust itself which is a really really substantial penalty so critical to get that done correctly that's probably their number one focus in the US at the moment are are foreign entities like this that go on foreign companies getting the filing done correctly for that is there as well. You, know, you sit back and you open up a you know a Pty limited typical business that you just run yourself showing out a you know a small profit every year. It's a very complicated US filing. Yeah, you know, that takes place with that and again make sure that you get that done correctly. The penalties are extreme for not getting it done correctly. There's also potential consequences for those profits. Because oftentimes, when you have a profit in a company, you don't distribute all of it. That's part of the, of the idea behind that. And the US has put in rules that started with twenty at the end of 2017, actually, and continued onwards that try and tax that profit, even though it hasn't been distributed at this point. And so, again, worth having that discussion to make sure that you're doing this correctly. There are potential planning ideas to limit that exposure, but you probably have some calculations to do. In order to get it right, the last item that I think I'll talk about today is the classic, you know, leaving aside all these exotic things like family trusts and self managed super funds and companies, an example. And you say, okay, I'm just going to go and put my money into a managed fund in Australia and go forward from there. I used to do this in the US. I had mutual funds in the US. I'll just do the same thing in Australia because that's where I live. US has a, a real potential problem. With those funds, they're called passive foreign investment companies, known by the acronym of PFIC. And that can be a real problem because those PFICs potentially can get very, very negative tax consequences when you start getting distributions, of, especially if you've had capital growth along the way that hasn't been distributed along those lines. It's worth knowing... As early as possible, what's happening with that? So a U.S. tax preparer can try and mitigate the impact of that as best as possible.
1: So, does it matter whether the managed funds is based in Australia or in the U.S.?
0: It does, for sure. So, so a U.S. a U.S. mutual they, they call it mutual funds in the U.S. and the yeah. U.S. mutual fund won't have this problem.
1: Okay, so it's only overseas uh, mutual funds or
0: managed funds that have this problem. Potentially, yeah. And In most circumstances, that's correct. So what we so often that means talk about- So if you're about, a
1: US citizen living in Australia, only invest in mutual funds in the US, don't invest yeah. in managed funds in Australia.
0: Normally we'll say, make sure you're educated before you start an investment. It doesn't mean it's the wrong investment. It just means you want to know what the ramifications are ahead of time. And if people are doing the planning themselves, if they hire a financial planner, just make sure that there's knowledge before you start putting the money to work. So this way, you have an acknowledgement of what's going to be the the outcome, and any planning that can can take place does take place. That's the biggest thing. The most frequent answer is that we get people who come to us, and you know, we're talking about years looking backwards, and you have to then all of a sudden, you know, deal with the cleanup on this, and there's no way to plan at that stage. It's it's simply a question of just taking the the hit and going forward. <music>
1: that really surprised me when I looked at an US individual tax return for the first time, the formed 1040, was the concept of qualified dividends mm-hmm. and exempt interest. And I understand that qualified dividends are infrastructure projects or similar things that somehow have registered and hence deserve... A- qualified
0: dividends are... The projects that you're referring to is probably where the interest falls more on the interest side. So qualified dividends is simply you know, a question in the US, depending on where the company is coming from, they'll tell you how much of a dividend is considered to be qualified. The interesting thing is that if you have a dividend from an Australian shareholding, then it's going to be qualified by definition because Australia and the US have a double tax agreement and that fits into the definition. And to give you an example of what that means to be qualified, it simply means that the U.S. treats that dividend like a capital gain. And therefore, you get those reduced rates that we talked about earlier for, for long-term capital gains okay. in the U.S. If it's a U.S. dividend, some of them will be qualified, some of them won't be. And so you'll have to just wait and see when you get your statements at the end of the year. They'll tell you exactly how much is qualified and how much is not and that happens. But so
1: when you prepare an Australian tax return, you disregard this distinction between qualified and normal dividends. You just take the to- total dividend amount Correct. and that's your Correct. income.
0: It comes up more from the point of view of the FITO that you claim on the Australian return for the US dividends. That's where that you, know, you have to start knowing that answer a bit more to claim the FITO correctly.
1: So you say that again?
0: You know, when you take a phyto on the Australian what is return, a Phyto FITO is a foreign income tax offset.
1: Oh, I see. Okay, so basically, when if it's you a have, US
0: dividend, for example, yeah,
1: when you have a US dividend, why would you get a Phyto for a US dividend? Because US doesn't have franking credit.
0: No, US has income tax that it's imposed on the on the dividend, oh, and yes, therefore, of for-
1: course, of course, yes, and then of course when you claim that you need to take into account that those qualified dividends have less tax attached to them than other dividends.
0: Correct. I mean, the biggest thing to remember with with that as well is that there is a treaty between the US and Australia that defines how much someone who is living in Australia and technically is a non-resident under treaty rules, how much the US can tax those dividends, which is limited to 15%. And so it's worth noting that the FITO can therefore be limited to 15%, even if it's not a qualified dividend in the US. I won't get it gets fairly complicated in how you prepare a US return to account for that point, but when you're doing an Australian return, that's one of the the key things to remember is the Phyto limitation on US dividends is 15%. The other point that you had mentioned with exempt interest so, typically, there, what you're probably looking at is what we would call municipal bonds. So, different municipalities in the US, it can be state governments, it can be local governments, they will issue bonds to try and raise, you know, get investment in for schools or for local projects or what have you. And the interest that's paid on those bonds, either along the way or at when you terminate the bond and give everything back that by definition on the US return is tax exempt.
1: And isn't tax exempt in the Australian for, for the, return. For the for the
0: US return not tax exempt on the Australian return, of course there's no agreement for that. And so the key thing to remember there is A, it will be taxable in the in the Australian return. B, there's been no tax in the US and therefore you shouldn't claim a FITO. I think we've gone through quite a bit and there's always other nuances. That is for sure. We could have a much longer conversation if we try and go through all of them. So I would say that's probably a good, a good starting point right there as far as all that. But otherwise, you know, the key thing is, you know, it's always worthwhile having a a chat with someone to make sure that they, uh, that you get some information ahead of time before you go ahead and uh, either A, make an investment or B, if you're going to move, either to Australia from the U.S. or to the U.S. from Australia. Make sure you can have that chat before you move, if possible, to make sure you know what you're getting into.
1: Welcome back. So you have two tax returns, both covering the same worldwide income, and yet the resulting taxable income might be completely different, will most likely be completely different. In the next episode, episode 234, Seth Hertz will walk you through the actual form of a U.S. tax return for individuals, the 1040 form, form 1040. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.